This podcast is produced by The Brand is Female. Hi, I'm Mungi. Welcome to the Everyday Ubuntu podcast. If I have one message to say, it would be please talk to each other, please notice the other people, and uh, don't necessarily just worry about getting to the top of the tree. Get to the top of your particular tree, of course, but on the way, keep a lookout for other people. Keep your branches out. This week, my guest is the lovely and lively Carol Stone. Carol is an author, a television and radio broadcaster who was at the BBC for over 20 years, as well as a media consultant and an ambassador for the Tutu Foundation UK. Carol and I were lucky enough to have this conversation in person, and I learned a few things about her that I never knew. We spoke about what her journey confronting grief has been like after the passing of her husband Richard, what she sees as her purpose work, and why networking is so important. The theme that runs throughout this conversation and through Carol's life and interactions with everyone she meets is the need for kindness, because we never know the true journey others are on. Well, Carol Stone, welcome to Everyday Ubuntu. I'm so excited to be speaking with you today. I'm pleased to be here. I'm excited. So I'm going to jump right in and ask you the first question that I ask all my guests, and it's about how our resumes are not a full explanation of who we are. And you, as someone with a really extensive resume, I'm wondering what's missing from it that you think people should know about you. Well, I suppose the personal side is that I grew up very, very shy. I was a very shy girl. I can remember when I first joined the BBC, I went up in the lift and always looked at my feet and didn't look at anybody. But I always had a curiosity, always thought, even when I was a very, very young girl, four or five, somebody somewhere knows the answer. I also had a brother who was two years older than me, who died in his mid-40s, who um, was always a tormented soul. Mm. He couldn't communicate with people, which I made me really want to communicate with people. He couldn't really share thoughts and share his ideas and was always questioning why we were here and what we were doing. And in his early 20s, I don't know if it was a cause of this, but in his early 20s, he was um, diagnosed as having paranoid schizophrenia. And he came running down the stairs one day saying in his early 20s that he ruled the world. And that rather upset me and made me try and find out why he felt that and mama said you're putting a sane mind on an insane mind but I was very very anxious as to why my brother had to grow up tormented and he died Uh, he had as good a life as he could have had with what he had I think in those times and he died of a stroke but my mother was with him for until the ambulance came I was with him all the time talking to him I did not know that about your brother but I also find it hard to believe that you were shy well, I've got, you can see me, your, your listeners can't. I've got a big nose and I've got small boobs. You can't see that. I always think, <laughs> had life been the other way around, life could have been very different. Uh, and when I was young, I thought I was going to have a boob job and a nose job and I was going to do this and do that. Too scared in the end, I think. And also, again, very, very always rather wanted to make sure who I was and who I am. So um, I think I'm non-threatening. I'm not a beauty. I'm non-threatening. And I think that's why, in a way, I'm lucky enough that I do make friends because I like people. Yeah, and people like you. Um, so you mentioned the BBC and you get in the elevator and look at your feet. And I know that you spent 27 years there starting as a newsroom secretary and then ending as a producer of Radio 4's flagship show, Any Questions? What was that experience like for you? You know, 27 years at a sort of huge name like the BBC. What what did you learn from your time there? Well, in those days, you just joined and you thought you kept the job until you were 60. That yeah. was just the way of the world then. 
and uh, that's what I thought would happen to me. But I always, I can remember Mama saying to me, doesn't matter, sweetheart, if you stay in the newsroom and do no more than make the tea, learn, always be interested, listen to people and learn from them. And so I learned from being a secretary. I moved up into local radio. I joined hospital broadcasting as a volunteer. I then went up to network radio. And then they said to me, Carol, do you know much about politics? Yes, says I, knowing nothing. Yeah. But I took, <laughs> I took the, all the parliamentary books to bed with me for about six weeks. And by the time they offered me the three-month attachment, they gave me the job after about six weeks. So and I loved it again. I'm not a girl who knows a lot about current affairs in the sense that my late husband was a BBC Panorama reporter, an ITN reporter. He covered the Biafra War. He was the first Western journalist to interview Saddam Hussein. That was not me, but I was interested in people. And I think that's why I so really enjoyed producing any questions to have four people a week around me who were tip-top in their own world of politics, business, media, whatever it was, mavericks, and they could answer questions of the day. I loved it. And I like that you, okay, six weeks, if you really like put your mind to something, you could, yeah, you could learn Yeah, every night it. I took to bed another book and who's this MP and who's that MP so that I could say, I know. And I think, to be honest, even the Director General then said to someone, well, she, what she doesn't know about politics, she makes up for in her personality in the sense that I was keen to listen and keen to learn. Okay, okay. I, I could see that. I could see that about, my, maybe I'm going to try that with certain things that I just don't think I know well. What would you say is your purpose work? Well, I didn't ever think of it as such, but I've always known that probably because of my brother being so shy and unable to communicate, I've always realized how big a thing it is in life to be able to share. Share mm -hmm. your problems and share your joys. I've always realized that. And so I began very slowly at first in the BBC in Bristol, um, when I was producing odd editions of Woman's Hour, I would learn, and even then on to any questions, always had people at my flat. I might have 50 or 60 people or a party for 100. And it was always the most important prominent people and the people who knew nobody but got great pleasure and had things to say. And then when I went to London, I had a big party in London, a thousand people a year I ended up having, but I still had the Bristol one. Until then I got wise and I thought, I'll push them together. <laughs> so I pushed them together. But I've always, always enjoyed that, bringing people together and knowing that they can learn from each other and can meet each other and the most surprising people surprising people would meet somebody they said I've just come and met so-and-so she was my mother's cleaner or my mother's whatever it was and they're people who now might be in, in really good important positions who gave time you could always tell the people that would give time to people who weren't the people that you necessarily wanted to know at that point and even people I must admit that I knew just went met the most important person and went I carried on being a friend with them because they were quite lively people themselves but it made you realize who really had what I call the humility of life yeah the people who like like they may not get anything from this person yeah. in this moment, yeah. but it's because they're not looking for a transactional relationship. That's right, and they got pure pleasure from learning from somebody. Yeah. yeah. So, okay, speaking about, you know, sort of bringing people together and the sharing, I know that you're the author of two books on networking. And so, you know, what do you think people need to know about networking and relationships and friendships? Well, I think the first thing is to forget your own ego, if you like, and to come in saying, this is me, I put my best dress on, I've combed my hair, I'm ready to talk to you. I'm now going to forget myself. I'm not going to be continually fishing with right. my hair and do I look all right and have you got the right view and everything, even if this were television. So I think to forget yourself and take an interest in the other person, to make sure if you're actually having a party, of course, you've got to make sure people meet each other, even at your own lunch or dinner. I went somewhere last night. There was an interesting 12 people there, but they weren't quite good enough at making sure we all talk to each other mm. and all learn from each Everyone other. Everyone gets comfortable that's in their right. little enclave. That's it. Yeah. And that's what you've got to do. So I think I'd say... 
um, do take an interest. If you're going to see somebody of import, you're going to hear someone speak, make sure you've read a bit about them. The more you know, the more you can ask. If you've read someone's book, you asked me if I'd heard some of your podcasts, which I have. The more you know, the more you've got background, the more you can say, look, I'm Carol Stone. Uh, I, I remember in your book, so-and-so, so-and-so. Can you tell me whatever? People are very flattered to be asked about yeah. things, but very nice if they think you've done a bit of homework. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and you know, um, I know that you also have the Carol Stone Foundation. Uh-huh. And I wonder if you could share sort of the mission behind it and also the origin story, which I know is... The which story? The origin story. What was that story? How it started. Oh, 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 oh. <laughs> uh, um, It's the American well, accent. Well, it was when Richard was alive. He died um, in November 9, 2019 from, uh, we were run over by a lorry. He had then had Alzheimer's for three years, but always knew me. It was always genial and was always the man I knew, but much, much more forgetful. And I said to him just before then, I said, we should start a foundation, sweetheart, because I've now got 55, 60,000 people in my database. I know so many people from, I'm, I was a counsellor for One Young World, the big charity. Mm-hmm. for um, 1,500 people getting together every year to talk about issues of the day. And um, I was doing quite a few mental health charities. And I thought to myself, I want to put everybody together, but I want to sort of put a little bit of money aside that if you've got something you really want to support, you can say it's bringing people together, it's um, discussing issues of the day, and it's really trying to make the world a fairer society. You know all about that. Yeah. And I and I like that. And you know, you you mentioned Richard a few times. I think we should speak about him. And you you spoke about how he passed away in late 2019. I wonder if you can talk about you know what your journey confronting grief has been like. Well, it it isn't easy. Um, people say you know you get over it in one year, two year, three years. You can call people you, say you'll get over it. They they well in the sense that you won't be quite so unhappy. You'll be able uh, to sort yes, of move. You, you don't on. get over it. You put it in another compartment that brings you joy. Uh, and I think that I felt myself that um, I was very lucky. I met Richard when I was 46. Mm-hmm. He'd been divorced four years. He said they'd never marry again. He had two young children who we saw regularly, but they weren't living with us. And um, I said to Mama, well, he's a nice guy, but he won't marry. And so she said, if you want to get married, leave him. And if you love him, stay. So I stayed. And he used to, <laughs> and he used to say to me, it's right, my sweetheart, it's right. And then 10 years later on Christmas Day, he said, before you can have your last present off the tree, you've got another question to answer. And we were unusually going out that Christmas Day. So I thought, oh, come on, sweetheart, we want to go out. And I looked to my left to see him, but he was on the floor on a knee and he was saying, will you marry me? I hesitated 10 seconds because I thought you should. And I remember thinking, well, in, in, if, if he dies before me and he's six years older than me, I'll have six years on my own. So I won't be always married. And of course, now nothing I want less than being on my own. There's a big difference between being on your own when you're maybe looking for love mm-hmm. and being on your own when you've lost the love. But how wonderful that you've had the love. And uh, I think that was very, very lucky with me. Uh, and I did say to him when we first met, let's write each other letters, my sweetheart, so that when one of us dies, the other one's got a letter to read. And he said, okay, then. And uh, when he died, I looked and found next to his will, his letter, and I had written mine, which he would never read. And I opened it on the morning of his funeral. We were had the funeral in central London, about five or 600 people came, all his colleagues and friends. And uh, it started off saying, my darling, this morning we are to marry in St. Martin's in the Fields, and you've long asked me to write a letter. He said that I transformed his life. He said, but that's not why I love you, sweetheart. It's because you are you. Things I thought I could never do without you, there's nothing I can't do with you. And he ended saying, be as kind as six pages, wonderful pages, all quotes in his beautiful handwriting. 
Be as kind to yourself as you are to others and remember you made me the happiest of men. And at the funeral, I read just that little piece and I said, I'm going to try my hardest to live within the glow of our love and that's what I want to do. And I think gradually, gradually, it may come about. Mm-hmm. And do you think since then you've been as kind to yourself as you have been to uh, A little bit, but I do get disappointed in myself when I don't do things quick enough or I try never to say, oh, sweetheart, come back and help me. Or even to, to my mother who... who uh, Richard was with me when my mother died. Um, I don't ever try and say, come and help me to either of them. But I do try and say, I'm going to try and make sure some of your wisdom or some of your love or some of your courage comes off on me and rubs off on me. And I'm disappointed when I find myself crying beyond compare. Don't howl anymore, but I often cry. And it's quite comforting in a way to do so. And to know that, don't forget, I'm, I'm much older and it is unlikely that I would form a new relationship, but you've just got to realise that you've got to go on sit, talking to people, be ever curious, really. And I hope that to have had those years with him, what a lucky bunny was I. And I think he would have dealt in his own way and he would have said the same. That's what I'm working towards. And, you know, is there some sort of advice you can share with the people around you who would be helping you through grief? Because... I, you know, I spoke to the the author and the journalist Catherine Mayer about her her husband passing and was saying that, you know, sometimes when someone around me loses someone, I don't know what to say. And so, first of all, that's that's one thing that we do is we sort of center ourselves instead of the person who is suffering. And she said that you'd be surprised by the amount of people who just don't say anything. And so I wonder if you have advice for people who are who are around someone that is experiencing grief and what they should be doing to help that person instead of sort of focusing on like, well, I don't want to do the wrong thing. Well, I read Catherine Mayer's book. She wrote it together with her mother because her mother's husband, her stepfather, died just before. And it was mm-hmm. unexpected with Catherine. They didn't even know he, he must have picked up COVID-19 in China, they think. Yeah. And it was very quick for her too. And she had some good things I remember about what you must do and what you mustn't do. I think the, I think the thing is to mention it, not to not mention it. Ask any questions you can. If you don't know Richard, ask me about him. And if you do know him, say something if you can nice about him. Like a memory. That's wonderful. A memory yeah. is wonderful. Um, come around, be, be in touch. It only need be just a line. Hope you're feeling okay. Whatever it is, I've got a friend now whose husband is seriously, seriously ill in his 60s. And I just, every couple of days, how are you? Let me know when you fancy to meet or chat. Yeah. But just the people to know that you're about. I think that you don't want somebody that, in a way, you can see why that they're, and how are you? And you sort of feel, even if you're the, feeling a little... deep voice that, and they're like, the lean And how in. are you? Yeah. And even if you're feeling <laughs> a little bit better that day, you think, well, they're expecting me to be low. So you sort of say, well, uh, this, this, and this. Yes. And, and in a way, you have to work above it because you can't really say, oh, I feel all right, thanks, because you seldom do. But it's a way of asking how you are. And it's a way, not in sort of in, in a sense of I'm here and I want to hear it in a in that way, but just to say, you know, what a, what a good life you have with him, how much you, you were pleased to be with each other. Whoever we, I'm sure that's the same, of course, with Catherine. But whatever way it is, just sort of talk about him, but don't dwell on it. Just talk about him so that when they ring, you're not necessarily saying, oh, dear, I just thought I'd better ring in case you're too low. But just say, oh. want to see how you are. And I remember the time we were with Richard. So I think be interested, but don't be too um, keen to necessarily bring out too much from the person because the person will tell you as much as they want to tell but they'll be very very pleased that you've been interested and a friend enough to ask and even if you're a stranger and say I understand your husband died my husband died so years ago whatever it is yeah. just to talk in that way I think you you must know 
that everything that happens to you, you've got to know that you've got to learn from it. You can't get stuck in it. You've got to learn from it. I don't want it to be, Richard, we're disappointed if in three or four years' time I'm still saying I can't bear to see couples together and I can't bear to do this. I would be saying, I hope by then, I miss that man as much as I've always missed that man. I sing him a song on the top of Hampstead Teeth every morning when I go for my walk. But um, but I have now, he's sort of, he's in my heart mm -hmm. and um, I can take other things on, which you can't do in the very first days. So I think that's the sort of thing I would say, to know it, it will go in the sense of that, that intensity will go, but you will be lived, left with, um, it depends if you've had a happy marriage. People who've had an unhappy marriage or an unhappy partnership maybe have got to get over the fact that they weren't as good to each other or whatever yeah. it is. Or it may be a child, which must be devastating. So there's all sorts of things. There's a, a, an organisation called the Compassionate Friends. I know which, and I went and spoke there once because Richard, my brother had died. But anything I think to talk about it, but to sort of gauge that when to stop. And what has sustained you in sort of difficult moments? Well, I think probably um, it, it is the fact that uh, A, what my, my mother, because she died first, and what my, my, my uh, husband, what they would have done themselves, and I know they would have coped in a different way. So I'm trying to have the courage they would have had, which I knew, face it head on, and to tell myself that whatever comes out of this, I may be a better person to help others, or, or able to help others more, because I've been through that. And to know that I did get through it, there was a quote, and I can't remember the exact quote. It was a woman who'd been in solitary confinement, and she said something along the lines of, it's on Radio 4 the other day, you can't go to hell and back without learning something from it. Absolutely. And I think to take something, we all know all about this, take something from that, and from this I've learned, from this I've learned, and that whatever happens, you have to make the most of what you've got there that time you can't waste time worrying about what might happen because the very things you think would happen something completely different will knock you down but i think you've just got and again be open to people and be open and it's very difficult because i found it very difficult at first to go on zooms with friends and couples especially if a couple mm. the woman had her arm around the husband or whatever or the part oh dear you've got to forget all that and just say i'm moving on to a new life but i was lucky to have what i had but i understand that that, that, yeah, that would be difficult in the beginning, and I don't think people think about that at all. Well, you know, who would you say are the people who have inspired you? Well, I'm, I think I'm going to be like you here, my mother. Of course, my yeah. mother. Well, you... we love mothers on every day of winter, so that's great. <laughs> I mean, uh, Mama, I think she married Dada because uh, her mother paid darts with him, and uh, she liked him. He was 16 years older than Mama. He'd been a boxer <laughs> in the Army, been in India. And he was the middleweight champion boxer of the British Army in India at his time. And I think and Granddad was a journeyman tailor that I think went in the workhouse when he couldn't pay his bills. They had no money. She didn't go to university, but she never thought of herself as being hard up. She had my brother who had paranoid schizophrenia. And although Dada was a loving, loving husband, he didn't really discuss things very much. Mm. And he had a little sweet shop. He had a milk round. And, um, but she always, always, she was learning poetry. She even gave me a pracy of the black hole. Stephen Hawkins, because what? she said, you'll need to know about this, my darling. You'll need to know about this. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. So she was just compassionate. She was um, wise. She just seemed to be born wise. And she was, even, even I remember Michael Winner, the late film producer, said, who wasn't always so generous with his comments, he said, just to stand alongside your mother makes me feel happy. And at my big party, she used to go around, she'd say, I'm Kathleen, I'm Carol's mother. And she used to be wonderful. Oh, my God, she does sound wonderful. No, I love when mothers are people's yeah. answers. I think that's the greatest thing ever. Um, 
So I know that you've been involved with a lot of different causes and one of them was, you know, sort of eliminating domestic violence, different organizations aimed at that. And I wonder what do you think it'll take to sort of eliminate domestic violence? Like, should it start with the language? Like the fact that we say domestic violence, it then makes it seem like it's something that is you know, private and in the home? Like, what Like, what will it actually take? Well, it's. It, I I keep coming back to the same thing. It is sharing the stories. It's not keeping it to your... There's a piece on the radio this morning about mm. domestic violence um, that, you know, you must share the stories. You must talk about it. Otherwise, people don't know because sometimes you're ashamed of it. Right. And whether it's coercive behaviour, which is not quite so easy to distinguish, whatever it is, you've got to admit, at one point say, this has got to stop and talk tell somebody if we're in that position or tell each other and I think that's the sort of way it can get through uh, and mental illness in general because of Roger of course I'm very interested in I think if you've got um, wh whatever it is I've done one with obsessive compulsive disorder yeah. um, the, the, there's the um, uh, Another charity I do is SANE, which is a friend of mine started. It's all about talking about people, autism, whatever it is. Everyone's got something to give. And I think it's trying to bring them together. We, we've done the one or two things, music for dementia, and taken taken a pianist and singers to people who have dementia with their carers if, if, if they need be and do a little afternoon tea or something. Anything that you can bring down. I can't think of one thing, this would finish it or this would right. stop it. I don't think it's like that. But I think the more the stories are told, and the more we can then put ourselves together. And there's so many good organisations now that are doing just that. And I've just this moment, I've got involved with the Montessori group, mm. which is the, the um, early learning children. And uh, they've got one or two projects with, I think, one with Mahatma Gandhi, um, all sorts of ones on kindness. What can we do to promote kindness? And I think this 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 is the, a huge thing. And in a way, it's kind to ask people if you think that they are suffering from anything, whether it's domestic violence or whether it's mental illness, just to be on the lookout. I think we can all do our part. Yeah, because we never know sort of what people are suffering. Yeah, from. you can you can probably give it get an idea if you're looking. I'm sure the HR departments are very much aware of this now. And another friend of mine is trying to make this this something first of all in Europe to make sure that HRs do know if they can look out for the signs and and make sure that their colleagues will report it. It's all about discussing it and sharing it. I think. Yeah, the taking away the sort of stigma. If, well, to the it. stigma is just terrible. The, the, the stigma is not as bad. I don't think now as it was. I mean, I never did not tell people that Roger had paranoid schizophrenia, but it wasn't as talked about as much as now it would be talked about. Right. Right. And and so, what would you say right now? It's sort of the cause that's closest to your heart. And if if it's not only one, you can totally talk about well, how I, many. Well, I, I suppose it is making sure that those less fortunate than you, and I don't mean monetary or anything like that, but those that are going through very very difficult times, and I think those who cannot communicate are the ones that do suffer a lot. I think it is just go back to kindness. It is just saying on the heath when you're walking high. I, you know, I've made friends with a couple of women who pick up the litter and we exchange ideas when we talk to each other. And it, you just come away feeling that little bit lighter, that little bit higher. So I think that probably kindness, bringing people together, and um, uh, I mean, of course, domestic violence, of course, uh, mental illness, all these things that are that are so important. Mm -hmm. But anything that you can do to to take something to people. My friend who got very, very depressed, she taught herself, she had lessons and went along, of course, how to be a clown. And she went into the hospitals of the children who were terminally ill and said that how she helped to get herself out of it. So I think wow. anything you can do to think, 
to give yourself a talking to and think, now what is it I can do that I can help this side of things? Or help? I mean, a friend of, of Richard used to be chairman of an almshouses and there's a lady there who's, who's um, very unwell and three or four times I've been to see her and when she has to cancel half an hour beforehand, you just pick up and go again because you understand why, because she's not feeling in, in very well that time. I think there's such a huge satisfaction, not in a, oh, that's not me way, but in just a warm way of thinking, I think that helped that person. In fact, she said, say to me, you've made me feel that I can carry on. I think and that's what people help me with. And I think it is, we, we all help each other in different ways. But I think if I have one message to say, it would be please talk to each other. Please notice the other people and uh, don't necessarily just worry about getting to the top of the tree. Get to the top of your particular tree, of course. But on the way, keep a lookout for other people. Keep your branches out. Yeah. I mean, I've noticed even when I'm sort of feeling down whatever it may be, that then reaching out to other people to check on them yes. makes me sort of step out of my insular issue or whatever That's it is. Right. It and, is. Yes. and I can focus on whatever they're going through, which may give me some sort of perspective on me. And that always sort of makes me feel better. That's, I, think so that, I, get that. I think that's right. And now we're so lucky with people who've got computers and emails that it's just, just a, a, you know, a, a tiny thing to do just to say, hope you're okay. Or of course, make a phone call or drop a note. But these days, the, the, those who've got emails, it is easy just to send a, a quick note to somebody and say, thinking of you. I just sometimes just put thinking of you and knowing they're going through a pretty bad time at that time and I think that is probably the way and then also to be aware when people don't want you near and don't want to, to yeah. talk about things I think it's, it's the same old thing do unto yourself as you know as you wish I mean all your all your wonderful one I've been read your book of books and <laughs> and, and heard um, but as you know I, I'm uh, ambassador with the Tutu Foundation so all those things are are as true as they've always been to be aware of that and you can soon pick out people who aren't and um, you can't really, I mean, sometimes if somebody's perhaps, you know, ignores me three or four times running, I'll put my hands on their shoulders and say, did you mean to be that rude? Just occasionally, <laughs> just occasionally. And nine times out of ten, they didn't. They no. were rushing around, you know. So that's fine. On the whole, as I say, I think I'm lucky to like people. And Mama taught me to be curious. I think they're the things, really. Yeah. And... You know, before I ask you my two very favorite questions, I wonder, did COVID sort of teach you anything about the world or humanity that that we should really be aware of? Well, funnily enough, because I'm a networker and used to have a party, I used to have 100 people to I my know, flat in this week. room. Yes, and I used to, they used to just for an hour and a half, so people came and went, and a 1,000 people every year. People said, oh, you must have been terrible if you to be in lockdown. But it happened you know, quite quickly after Richard died. And I didn't feel that at all. I felt I was doing a little of my own podcast about grief, and I was making notes about Richard. I'm writing a little memoir myself about grief and, uh, and and love and grief and, and, and how you can sort of do your best through it. And uh, so I was quite relieved really to say, oh, see you after lockdown, yeah. see you after lockdown, rather than having, as I used to have days with two people coming for coffee, one different times, someone for lunch, someone for afternoon tea, someone for drinks. It was too much, you know, and I thought, why am I trying to keep, that's why I had the salons to keep in touch with people. But in a funny way, I don't think I did only once more to know that it hits everybody. Mm -hmm. It hits everybody. And uh, it's that those who can who can come through it having learned something, a bit like the lady I said in solitary confinement, it is all about if you can't learn from it, then you think, well, why, why did it happen? And I feel that I don't think it happens for any particular reason. But if you can deal with it on learning from it, of course, getting over it, I think that is that's what I'm hoping that I will. I'll be a, a, a person that has got more about me and more that I could give to other people. That's what I mean, I think, really. 
yeah. you know, in the sense of helping them with, with ideas or whatever it is. Yeah. And is there anything like a title or a release date that you can share about the memoir so people know to look out for it? Oh, well, the, the memoirs are already on YouTube okay, and uh, they're there already, just 11. I did two a week for about six weeks in between Richard's anniversary of his dying and the anniversary of his, his funeral. And it's just little four minute pieces saying, well, today I feel like this. And then I remember one I put a jacket on that I found of Richard. Said, now, this is going to remind me of Richard, but if I don't, don't wash it, when will it smell? And things yeah. like that. And all these things of what can you do just to sort of buck yourself up. And uh, I'm sure people say get a dog. I don't think I can take a dog. I've got two cats. That cats is a I lot bought of for work, Richard. Though. Yes, and they're, and they're lovely. I'm sure they've got an idea that I'm not as high as I was. And um, so I, I think that uh, that's what I would say I learned out of it, that um, you've just got to come out of it better in the sense of more more self 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 assured in your own self but i didn't actually think oh dear i can't cope with this lockdown i mean because i used to go for a walk on the heath that helped me people said walks well, so i've got a garden but i don't do any gardening but um <laughs> i did sort of now that helped me and i was a, a decluttering uh, to an nth degree throwing things out and then what would you say is your greatest fear for humanity well i think i my, my greatest fear is that we don't learn that we don't move on that we don't um uh, it, it goes back again to share the information, whether it's about the viruses. I've just been listening to the book on Radio 4 about the people who who um, discovered one of the vaccinate vaccines. Um, I think if we could all just think one more, I'm sure we do, a bit like the kindness in the streets. I'm sure just one more thing to think about. You know, we've got to look after each other and things happen so terribly unexpectedly oh, just to make yeah. sure that we are aware of that and and not necessarily just sort of grabbing for the top although of course we all want the top but just to do that i think i think already people are more friendly maybe uh, in my daily this is it just me in my own little little world here um of talking to each other and so i think it, it would be not to learn really just be, i mean of course the environment you know of course everything we've got to learn but i just feel in, in in if we can just come away feeling a little bit more that we're keeping a lookout on others and then what is your greatest hope for humanity well, I think the hope is that um, the, the un, a bit like the foundation, that um, the inequalities are ironed out a little yeah. so that um, we can, for, for all people, I mean, it's so difficult, the world, I mean, your father took in the world. And Mama used to say to me, you can't look after the world, darling, just your piece of it. We look after a family in Chennai that's in India, but we don't look after the whole of India. So I think that if we can just all do a little bit, there was a piece on the tele, on the radio, I think, if you give up half a biscuit a day and half a chocolate biscuit, in a year, people would have lost so many pounds. And I thought, oh, that's pretty good. Hmm, you know, so okay. I'll start, I'll so start with that. So I shouldn't have that cookie so that I, I was going to eat later? If, if we each just take, you know, one thing or do one thing that we think, even if it's only picking up a piece of paper from the ground that's, that's yeah. rubbish, if we just do one thing each, whatever it is, or, or, or make a phone call for someone who's got a child, the handicap, or take a handicap child, whatever, just do one little thing as regularly as we can, I think it will help the world to move on in the back, I'm back again to, to, to kindness and to sharing. Yeah, no, I like that. It makes sense. I mean, this isn't the same thing, but um, Ed and I saw something where someone had said that they had started collecting a dollar for every time someone asked if they were going to have a kid and they were putting it in a jar. And so now they have all this money to spend on not kids. And he was like, we should start doing that. I'm like, yeah, a dollar every time someone asks. That'd be great. Well, so that's very... I did, I did little a, things. I did a pound for every time I swore. <laughs> uh, and then when I got to 50 pounds, I tried to give up swearing. <laughs> but that went to charity. They say that um, intelligent people swear. 
to oh well that's yeah. very nice so no. you don't have to give it up well totally i like this <laughs> but what carol, a wonderful way to end <laughs> yeah carol thank you so much for coming on the podcast thank you I hope you enjoyed this conversation today and don't forget to hit subscribe and give the show a rating and review wherever you enjoy your podcasts. Follow me at mungi.ingomane on Instagram. I'd love to hear from you and get your feedback on the show. I'll be back in a week with a new episode. Thank you for listening to Everyday Ubuntu.